This is Autumn Keynes, and you are listening to EdTech.fm. At the end of June in 2015, I sat down with EdTech.fm contributor Byron Rausch and Dr. Greg Zobel, Assistant Professor of Educational Technology at Western Oregon University, to have a conversation about Open Educational Resources, or OERs. You can find that podcast on our website at edtech.fm. But the conversation continued after we finished talking about OERs and morphed into a conversation about the nature of educational technology as a field. We talked about academics studying within educational technology as well as professionals working in edtech. We liked the conversation so much that we decided to break it off and make it a separate podcast. The first thing that you're going to hear is Greg talking about his PhD program and how he got his start in ed tech. I did my PhD like when I started was like 39 or 38. I had no idea that ed tech was even really that available as a field. I stumbled into it. And one of the things that that's a problem with the field is that it's very much like technical communication or technical writing. Is that when you go through your grad programs, you often have people around you. Not always, but you often have people around you who they know the same materials, they know the same background, you share the same literature, you've been working on the same lineages, all that for for a couple years at least. I did my PhD in three years, so it was kind of short. But you spend this time, right? And mine was in tech comm, and it was composition before that. I got a job in ed tech in a college of education. So I've hopped over. Now imagine, you know, if you moved from composition or from sociology over into health and wellness, or you moved over into the sciences. So you're kind of familiar with it, but not really. And the cultures of each of those areas is very different. Now with ed tech, what changes even more is that People who come into ed tech are from such diverse backgrounds. Some of them are IT. Some of them are all the different education fields. Some of them are really savvy with tech. Some of them, at least in my experience, aren't. And then you have administrators, instructional designers, practitioners, and all this. So what you get, in in my experience at least, is this ongoing, perpetual lack of professional identity, sense of alienation. At least that's me. Maybe I'm just you know an, an insecure guy or whatever. But when you move from field to field and you don't have that much in common in terms of your training or your readings or your background, when you have an opportunity to have conversations where you have where there are people who share those points in common, it's a real opportunity. So that's a long way of saying and this is what happens when you get a PhD. I swear to God, you have the ability to babble. Because your dissertation is essentially you re-saying the same thing eight different ways in all the different chapters. It's the same thing in conversation. But no, it's I enjoy having a conversation. But yeah, prepare for alienation. It's just, this is weird. I think we both probably identify pretty well with that. I think Autumn also does, but I, I come from IT. so uh, And I come from, so I did some mobile device support and things like that. And I was really working on working with faculty to kind of help integrate those and teach them how to use the technology. And our web developer at the time actually handled the uh, course management system. We used to be like a Microsoft front page based thing. And then we adopted what we're on here now at the university 10 years ago. Um, So he kind of helped migrate content and that kind of stuck. 
And when he left, I took over the web developer position, which also meant that I was now the ad tech person. And uh, within, I don't know, six to 12 months after that, it, you know, it was more or less full-time ad tech and uh, online learning and things like that. But the, the whole, like, there is no professional identity, and that is something that's like a real challenge. You can't, you know, and our program really is extremely loosely structured. So, you know, I used to work in nursing and now I work in social work. And, you know, they're, the first class you take is literally developing your professional identity. And I don't even know what they could do in, in our program to do that. Just because everybody is from such a different perspective and everybody... You know, some people are K through 12 teachers that aren't planning to change the way that they practice at all. You know, but they they have an interest in technology. There are some people that are in information technology, but they work at you know higher ed and just kind of want to get more informed. And uh, there are people like me who do a little bit of everything, a little bit of instructional design. People that work in corporate, uh, and I think the corporate people really seem to have like the most. It, it's kind of interesting. They seem to have like kind of the tightest idea of what instructional design is at least and here that is kind of rolled into ed tech but they kind of have fairly focused positions and it's developing content resources and those horrible like modules that everybody has to take when they start a new job things like that but they at least have an idea of what each other does and you know autumn and i could sit down for lunch and talk about our weeks and they're completely different it's that's i think is the joy i mean it's it's one of these it's the dynamic tension and I mean, I'm going to be honest again about faculty and I love being faculty and I adore faculty. Don't get me wrong. They're like, they're close to my heart. Right. But we are also one of the most overeducated or I should say overschooled in the Illich's term. We are one of the most overschooled. And if we look at John Gatto, I don't know if you've read John Gatto, but weapons of mass instruction amazing stuff essentially we're so addicted to school and schooling that we don't know how to identify most of us without it because we're so good at it but one of the things that this results in is that the processes of schooling are so well constructed in inbreeding insecurity and paranoia about us and our work that if we're not constantly you know like receiving feedback and positive verification that we're doing well, we start to worry. And I've only met, I think, three to four academics in my field who were supremely confident. And I can see one of them right now. This dude, like, his first book out was on Oxford and then his second book out was on MIT. And, like, and he's got like scores of you know like highly ranked journal publications. This guy is like, but almost everybody else I know has perpetual skepticism and doubt. And I think that's a large part due to us being in higher ed, but it's also due to the schooling processes and the way that learning has been constructed. And it's, you know, a factory competitive model. And where we're, what we do with ed tech, and I think it's one of the joys of ed tech, is that if we can reposition how we do our education and schooling, we can challenge the the heinous concept of pedagogy, which is you know like passing down the the master's way of behavior and rules to our to our children. At least that's you know like, and I didn't even know this until I read Gatto. I was like, what pedagogy? Why are you hating on the word? And essentially, pedagogues were 
Greek slaves or servants for the Roman master class, and their entire purpose was to inculcate the master's teaching into the students. And if you think about pedagogy in that framework, it kind of makes you want to puke. I know other people define pedagogy in different ways, but what I like to think of things now is in terms of learning and education, and how can we move away from schooling into educational experiences and there's a lot of people who have done a lot of interesting work. I mean, there are more, and there are diverse approaches, but where technology allows us to do interesting things, at least in ed tech, and when we're not chained by corporate, you know, rules, and we're not having top-down heavy administration, we often have areas of relative freedom. And this kind of temporary autonomy often exists because people are ignorant about what we do and how systems can work and that their ignorance often equals our freedom and the ability to innovate and include things in our classes or do innovative um, integrations of technology or approaches to teaching or you know throwing your students into the deep end to experience as opposed to just teaching them instead they get to live things or do things that I think can be the same thing with our identity to bring it back is that if we expect there to be some fixed singular identity, which is what I think we expect kind of through a positivist worldview, I'm Greg, I'm an ed tech faculty member. What does this mean? As opposed to I have a multiplicity of identities. One of them is that I work with ed tech. Another is that I like budgies. This is another that I like Iris, you know, all these other things. If we allow for ourselves to have the multiplicity of identities, and the professional one is just one of them, I think that kind of loosens it up. But when I come back to school, when I come back to my office, there's always this desire to perform as what I think faculty should be, which is some like half-breed between a, you know, Oxford Dawn and some like, you know, media construction that, you know, of English professors you know we and i think it was maybe in the rise of 15 mooc we talked a little bit about the we were using the term intersectionality which has a different connotation that's closer tied to oppression um if you're thinking about it in like a um uh diversity kind of context but but yeah i do think that ed tech is a very intersectional field there's a lot of things that are kind of coming together at the at the same time, and it can create sort of a crisis of identity. Um, but at the same time, I think that if you can, if you can kind of embrace that as a hodgepodge of different things coming together, if you can embrace it as uh, as uh, you know an intersection of several different things, if you can if you can look at that as a whole instead of looking at it as all of these different parts. Um, it can be kind of difficult, but I think that it can create a very rich identity. There's one of the, I think, things that is really important that we do is the work of, say, Audrey Waters and um, Neil's, I think it's Neil Selwyn. I think last name is Selwyn. He's an Australian. He's in Australia now. And then uh, some of the work done by hybrid pedagogy, 
and not just because I got published there, but <laughs> not just because you're an editor there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, yeah, I forgot about that. That, <laughs> and that's this is that's one of the reasons why I wanted to become involved. Sure. But I, I really look at Waters as a role model for people who are interested in being authentic educators with technology because what she does is she's taking a critical lens and she's forcing transparency and forcing openness on technologies and tools that we normally don't look at or, or aren't being questioned. And the naturalization of technology or the you know inherent value of having technology in the classroom and her willingness to tackle those issues is vital. And I think that she has modeled some incredibly important and powerful behavior and she's paid for it as well by getting trolled and you know who and threats of violence and all this kind of bullshit which happens but fortunately she is not tapped out instead you know she has continued to do important work and I think it says a lot about the threat that you pose to a system depends on the kind of attacks that they will leverage at you and direct at you. And she has done a lot of important social justice work, but the anti-corporate stuff and the challenging of Pearson and the whole, do we even need technology? Those are questions that more people, I think in ed tech should be asking and we should be discussing, even though we may love technology, is the technology the end or do we really want healthy, strong communities, do we really want autonomous learners? And for me, my own personal agenda at this point is how can I promote and and work towards my students becoming stronger, more stable, autonomous learners so that they don't need me, so that they don't need a formal learning structure, so that they can learn and educate themselves outside of this system. Because near as I can tell, the system is demanding and extracting more from our students every year. Sure, and, sure. And so when they graduate, I want them to be able to do this so that they can choose whether or not they want to pay so that they can continue to learn. And those individuals who are doing critical digital literacy and critical digital technology studies provide us with a way to see what it is we're doing. There's – I'm just – I, you're letting me rant about all the cool things. <laughs> that's good, though. That's good. Um, I, I, you kind of lost me a little bit with the stuff that's happening with Waters. I'm not really – I just really kind of got into her. I just um, yeah, I just read her most recent piece, uh, Do We Still Need Computers in Schools or something like that. And I've been thinking yeah. about it a lot lately, actually. Yeah, I found it really to be really provocative. Um, but I didn't know about the trolling on her. Um, essentially because she is a woman who is challenging white boys in technology and has a, is asking questions about, remember when, um, the Mike Brown event happened and some of the other shootings, she brought these up as being important issues and that in ed tech, we shouldn't ignore those. And she has a very explicit, um, feminist critique of a lot of issues within ed tech um, the same kind of Gamergate, um, mm. uh, masculinist 
approach of, uh oh, they're critiquing us. Let's go smash on some women. Um, there has been that kind of response. She addresses it in some of her um, essays and in some of her posts. Um, and it's particularly bad from what I can gather in terms of her pieces on mansplaining um, that you, you read it. And at least I look at that and I'm, and I'm like, oh, you know, how many times have I been a tool when, you know, I've been mansplaining tech people to people that probably know more than me. So I find her, her writing and some other folks writing particularly useful in terms of checking my own problems to make sure I'm not being uh, oppressive, not being basically not being a tool. And but what I think is also important is that she's challenged practices within ed tech. Like, let's pretend that, you know, white police are not shooting black youth. And how, how is that not an ed tech issue? Because we're teaching our students weapons are technologies. We inherently have racism embedded within the technologies as well as within our classes and we will face these issues as a culture. So we're just going to pretend that race isn't an issue. I'm grossly oversimplifying here and I'm not very articulate on this. That's sometimes why I try to go to look at people like Waters, like hybrid pedagogy. And there's a whole chock full of people that I follow on Twitter that critique academic culture and that critique, particularly white male culture and white male academics who are trying to parasitize off of the scholarly and social media work of a lot of black women and women of color. And it's, I think it's vital to look at just to see what's happening, but also to recognize technology is not neutral in any way, shape or form. And while we think citation or encouraging our students to go, oh, go read this woman of color. She just posted about how she's been hassled on Twitter. If you do that, what other boxes are you opening up? You're actually directing more people to potentially troll and abuse her. Are you also not potentially extracting and pulling value from the work that they've done? Are you not trying to get your own cultural capital as, you know, a sensitive academic or, you know, like I'm a I'm an aware anti-racist white boy. So now because I'm citing this author, this now makes me cool. Kind of just being aware of what kind of extraction you you can engage in, even if you think that you may not be. And technology makes it much easier to do that because we can go reblog posts that other people have created. And I think when we're in ed tech, it's very easy for us to think that everybody shares a lot of the same culture and values that some of us have established and open source is, has largely been a white boy, white you know, male domain. And there are plenty of issues about the meritocracy that I think in some extent has seeped into some of OER. And in my view, I'm not critiquing OER and I'm not saying open source is bad, but what I am saying is that when you have privileged communities who are creating the structures and the ways things are organized and the way things are sorted, that has inherent power and control in it. And when you've excluded other populations and or not invited them into critique, there will be some structural racism. There will be some structural class bias. And 
no matter what you do or how you try, it's probably going to be there unless you bring in other people to try and help moderate and make the system more open and accessible to more people. I think education departments have a long way to go before they realize how much of a part of this problem they really are. Like, you know, in class we'll talk about Pearson and testing and blah, 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 but, you know, Pearson isn't out there on their own developing tests and proving that these tests are effective. You know, faculty at places like Ohio State, where we are, are, you know, doing the research that are putting these things in place that we all then sit around and complain about. Um, and, you know, I think there's just a lot a lot of work to go before we just realize this. And it's all tied back into, you know, funding models because the federal government wants to, you know, pay for things that are effective. But how do you prove it's effective? You have to have a number at the end. So you have testing. So you have to prove testing's effective. Uh, and it really kind of – the whole system is kind of – you know, geared toward this privileged kind of research, which results in, you know, us teaching to the test in a classroom somewhere. You know, it's it's pretty awful. I have no idea. How to, you know, I have no idea how to address any of it, but <laughs> it, it really yeah, is terrible. I I think what I think just the awareness first that the technology is not neutral is part of it. But beyond that, being cognizant of the fact that you need to diversify participation in your field and if you ask why aren't they coming to join us, that's part of your problem. I don't know. It's it's so huge. It's very, very – We just there aren't enough people doing the kind of work that that's being done in terms of challenging the presence of – race, class, and other kind of intersectional prejudices. And I think OER, the, one of the reasons it may or may not be used, may we may have some of those problems. I honestly have not been involved in the community enough. What I do know is that it does have an international spread, and that bodes somewhat well. But at the same time, I think if we're developing OERs, we should try and bring in external perspectives so that, that rather than it just being this cool stuff which should be designed for our class, but putting a little bit more effort into it by bringing external reviewers, we can build it as a robust resource which could be used in more environments and frankly you know, can work towards social justice or anti-racist and hopefully some anti-capitalist work as well. I mean, this, this is one of the things that, I mean, I... I, again, I love my field, but I, I'm concerned with it. And I think it's on us, especially, you know, like coming from positions of privilege, who else has the funding and the time to go discover and find out other things that can happen? There was a piece that a colleague sent with me, sent to me, and it was um, from someone who's a prison abolitionist. And what she said is that even in the world of activism, prison abolitionists, everybody looks at you just kind of askance because you are a real utopian and there's no way this is possibly going to happen. But then there's a reference to Le Guin and you know her statement about capitalism. Essentially, people used to believe about the divine right of kings and that went away. Why isn't capitalism, you know, we can see capitalism the same way. It may go away. The point that this author moved to then was discussing and looking at Octavia Butler's science fiction and then 
what kind of what could we look to in Octavia Butler and other kinds of speculative fiction and science fiction to give us alternate visions of how the future might be or how interactions might be. And there is a lot of um, Afrofuturism and Afro African-American science fiction that can give us different perspectives on technology. And if our tech, imagine if our technology was shaped on say Butler's view, as opposed to what we saw in terms of Star Trek, what would that mean after 40 years? I mean, I, I don't know, but I think if we start looking at other narratives and other visionary approaches to how we could use technology, that can shape our daily practice because it's opened up these different fields of potential. And I don't know that philosophy is the only place that we need to look. I think we also need to look at speculative fiction. I mean, William Gibson, um, and then, of course, there's the Cryptonomicon guy with his huge novels. I think if they've had a huge impact, I think, on how technology sees itself and frames itself and the narratives and the concepts that we use to think about technology and particularly for those of us in ed tech, impacts some of our entire culture and especially portions of IT. Now, I know there are other visions that have impacted our thinking as well, but we have to bring in other views, I think, if we really want to break down walls to entrance. But I think if we also want to learn, we need to read other perspectives and other ways of seeing things. And that's can allow us to see things perhaps as not as hierarchical, maybe in terms of webs and nets as opposed to structures. I mean, rhizome is one way, but again, I think we need to look other places. And I think part of that is just developing the creative aspect of your brain or allowing yourself to, to have others' experiences and narratives can really help with that. Not just documents and not just pictures or images, but story and and robust, interesting characters. And then that could maybe help broaden the horizons that we have and our expectations. Oh, there's one thing that I meant to include. I, I went and looked for it. This guy's name is Owens and he has a book. It's called Designing Online Communities. It is one of the best, and I read about it, of course, at Audrey Waters' site, she mentioned she name dropped him. No, I'm serious. Like anytime I think I'm on top of stuff, and I look at Waters, and she's like always light years ahead. So she's a fantastic guiding light in a lot of this material. Um, but the book is designing online communities, and what's brilliant about it is one, it was a converted dissertation, but two, he talks about how the very nature of constructing and building communities embodies power and how it embodies control and the different approaches. And he does micro and macro analyses on it. It's brilliant. Thanks, Greg. All right. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to babble. It's <laughs> been some, some, some good questions. It's just, I think we just need more conversations and particular about questioning. And we do really do need to question ed tech and not because we dislike it, but because we love it. Right. Yeah. You've been listening to edtech.fm, where we take a look at educational technology from a higher education perspective. You can find more podcasts on our website at edtech.fm. 
You can also follow us on Twitter, where we are at edtech underscore FM. Thank you for listening and tune in again soon. Thank you.